listening to this podcast on the radio, chances are you're over 18, probably over 25, and possibly over 40. And how do we know this? Well, last year, research came out looking at how New Zealand's 15 to 24-year-olds consume media. And the verdict for legacy media, like TV and radio, was pretty dire. Young people get their news and entertainment from YouTube, TikTok and Instagram, not Stuff, The Herald and RNZ. According to the research, young people thought locally made content was cringe, not high quality enough. But a lot of the time, young people didn't even know it existed. The government had plans to change that. A new public media giant will be up and running by the middle of next year, with Radio New Zealand merging with TVNZ. What's critical is that new audiences, those not engaged with current public media, including our young people, will also be catered for. Underserved audiences, uh, Mr Speaker, will have a better chance of seeing and hearing themselves and finding content that engages them. But just this month, those plans were put in the shredder. On the two-week anniversary of taking office, the Prime Minister has ditched or deferred a suite of significant policies. The proposed merger between Television New Zealand and Radio NZ is gone. Tens of millions have already been spent, as well as months of work. Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail, the merger might be gone, but New Zealand's underserved audiences are still there. Does our mainstream media need to scrub up quick, Or have we already lost the next generations to the digital world and social media? Duncan Grieve is the founder of the media site The Spin-Off. He's poured over NZ On Air's youth audiences research, and there are some pretty confronting findings. The most popular New Zealand-based platform is TVNZ, and that comes in eighth, behind YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, Netflix, TikTok, and Snapchat. And it's and it's quite a distant eighth. You know, those big technology platforms just own the attention of young New Zealand in a way that it's quite obvious looking at it and looking at the longitudinal trends to say that this just is not going to change. We have to adapt to that. Let's have a quick um, look at some of those key findings from that research. Um, each day, less than one in three 15 to 24-year-olds watch TV, local on-demand sites or listen to the radio. Where are young people getting their news information? What content are they looking at? I mean, I think the news and information part of it is, is in some ways even more interesting. You know, like the growth of user-generated content channels. Sometimes we use this term social media. Sometimes you, you use user-generated content. Basically, any place where you know, the user can can create content for it. And, you know, that's very different from the era that we've come in where to do any kind of mass communication happened on radio print, all these things with huge moats around them that were very hard to, it was very hard to talk to a lot of people all at once. And this era, you've seen social platforms where the users create the content become by far the most popular distributors. And so for... New Zealand On Air, for TVNZ, for RNZ, all of whom used to have that audience as of right, they're now competing with millions of individuals, not just in New Zealand, but all over the world, to do kind of broadly similar services around entertaining and informing. The only difference being that for for a TVNZ or or an RNZ, they need to 
make sure that what they carry is factually correct, that it fits to media council or broadcasting standards authority guidelines, none of which exists in the user-generated content sphere. Some media organisations are trying to tap into youth audiences with specific youth-focused platforms. For example, TVNZ has ReNews and RNZ has Tahi. But are they making a dent? But neither Tahi nor ReNews were sort of, you know, particularly stood out in this survey. They're both relatively under-resourced by comparison to the scale of their parent companies. So if you're looking for local companies that showed up well here, The Edge did quite well from a radio perspective, and even something like the NZ Herald for video, which you wouldn't really associate with being a youth brand particularly, did quite well. But what these really show is that when you have a large scale audience at an older demographic, you will still see some young people showing up there, whether it's driven by search or, you know, their parents have it, you know, all the kind of things that naturally spread content amongst generations. But there are still some brands around there which are doing interesting things, like I think shit you should care about uh, massively outperforms its scale, seeking to reach a global audience, but probably having a disproportionate share of local uh, through driven through social platforms. Gilda, I'm Lucy Blakiston and I'm the co-founder and I run the platform that is Shit You Should Care About. What is Shit You Should Care About? I, oh, as in what should you care about or what actually is the platform? What is What actually <laughs> is the platform? I mean, well, both, but also <laughs> let's start with the platform. The platform is we are a Gen Z run news and pop culture and technology and everything else you might possibly want to care about uh, platform. We have a daily newsletter. We have two podcasts. We have quite a big social media presence. And yeah, we're just out there trying to help people give a shit. I'm just going to get you to expand a little bit more on on what what kind of issues, topics and stuff you cover, what you've sort of been covering in the last um, kind of, I don't know, month or so even, just to kind of give people a flavour of what what you're doing. I wake up each morning at 5am and I put together a a newsletter of literally whatever is speaking to me or to the audience or what I've had tips about. And it truly is a mixed bag. So there will be hard news in there, if we still call it that, like things like the earthquakes affecting Turkey and Syria at the moment. The ground here under my feet shook, devastating two nations, killing thousands and burying a region in grief. So I've been reporting a lot on that. And then there's more local things like we are currently in the midst of a cyclone. Now, the government says there are 225,000 people without power across the country. Energy Minister Megan Woods says it's the largest disruption to electricity infrastructure since Cyclone Bowler, which hit in 1988. I mean, at the same time, we've had Harry Styles winning some Grammys and winning some Brits. Okie dokie. So the Brit Award goes to, drumroll, babe, here's a drumroll, the man that just does not stop. Harry Styles. So it's really a mixed bag of whatever isn't going to leave you feeling like shit, but is going to inform you that day so you can have a good conversation at lunch or at dinner with your parents or your mates and and you can feel in the know. You're sort of not a traditional media outlet, are you? 
No, I mean, in, in the way that we don't have a physical thing that we deliver the news in, I guess we operate on social media, which is interesting. But, you know, we send newsletters and we do podcasts like a lot of traditional news media does, but I guess we just skew younger and we speak in a very different tone. I would say that's our biggest differentiator. So how how did it start? How How did this all come about? It was 2018 and I was at uni in Wellington studying international relations and media. I've always loved being up to date with things and writing and wanted to learn a bit more about it, obviously. I was in my third, yeah, I was in my third year and I was sort of sitting there in one of my lectures just thinking, like, why am I just not understanding what's going on in the world around me? I try to be as engaged as I can. Um, and I want to know more and I want to care about things, but the, you know, I was getting given readings that were just all black and white and really quite dense and used huge words. And none of them felt like they were talking to me, like how me and my friends would usually communicate. And so I text my two best mates, Ruby and Liv, who still run this platform with me today and said, I think we should start something called shit you should care about where, we help people care about things, but we use words that, you know, all we all use in our day-to-day lives, hence why there's a swear word in the title. <laughs> and, you know, we don't make anyone feel like they're getting left behind or they're not smart enough to understand the news or they need a paywall to access good information. And sort of, so that was 2018. And from there, it just became my hobby to like make sense of the news and what journalists that I respected were doing and then sort of make sense of it in my head and give it to anyone that wanted to hear it in maybe a more relaxed tone and with a bit of humour where I could, I think. It's much more than a hobby now and we'll get to how it's funded at the end of the podcast. But I wanted to ask Lucy why she thought mainstream media isn't reaching young people. Everyone is reaching for this youth audience. And you can hire great young people to speak in a way that suits young people and maybe you'll grab some. Or you can try and meet them with that app, which means using every platform a bit differently. So you've got to use Instagram differently to how you'd speak on a podcast, differently to how you'd, you'd read or write an article. And understanding that's super important. But I do think there does come a point where we grow up and we start reaching for more traditional sources. And I don't know if that'll stay the same because obviously we're seeing the rise of TikTok and that's sort of grabbing all our attention. But yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a danger in constantly trying to reach an audience and sort of forgetting to serve the one that you do already have and that loves you. So you don't necessarily think mainstream media outlets, for example, TVNZ, RNZ, others like Stuff, The Herald, they shouldn't necessarily be chasing desperately after these youth audiences because do you think these audiences will eventually come to them as they grow up? I mean, that's what I hope. You know, I don't think young people are going to revert back to watching linear TV or consuming, you know, the 6 p.m. news or anything like that. I mean, my household and most of the people I know, we don't even have TVs. So I think there'll be, obviously, you should adapt to the behavior of young people, which is why it is super important to be utilizing things like social media and, and newsletters and getting getting young people in to 
add a bit of personality to to the news that you're giving. But I do think that, I mean, the media is like an ecosystem. You've got to have those brilliant journalists that are out there breaking the news, getting the stories, writing about it as objectively as they can in really meaningful ways for platforms like Shit You Should Care About to be able to think, oh, that's a source that I love. Let me just quickly make sense of this to me and then, you know, make sense of it for a lot of other people. How important is it for you to ensure that the information you're putting out there is is fact? I mean, you've covered some fairly, um, you know, meaty kind of topics, the protests in Iran, for example. How do you make sure what you're putting out is verifiable content? What do you do to ensure that what you're giving to your audience is the best possible information? It is like the most important thing to me because obviously I studied media and international relations and I I saw after 2020 a lot of other sort of Instagram accounts pop up doing similar things to what we did, but I had no idea, you know, who was running them or or what they would do to make sure they were putting out good and factual information. And so I've always just said, like, I can trust me to do this well and to the best of my ability. And I have people around me that help me when I need it. But I don't, I can't vouch for anyone else that's trying to tell the news on social media. Things like I, I won't obviously write about something before sources that I trust um, have covered it. I'm not here to be the first at breaking a story. I think that's really important in terms of my processes. I have a lot of places that I'm constantly reading. And if I see something on, you know, Twitter, which can be can be good for local news or to start, you know, the conversation about something, I won't just report on it based on what I've seen on social media. And I, and I like that you um, brought up the Iran story because there was a story going around like right like in the heat of the protest and and there was a story that I think 15,000 people were being executed. Everyone needs to watch this video. It has just been reported that 15,000 Iranians who have been arrested in protests are now facing the death penalty. And I just remember I saw like Justin Trudeau shared it and all these like all these celebrities and politicians started sharing it and I just thought I actually haven't seen this backed up once. And then I wrote a big piece about it in the newsletter because it turned out no news outlet had actually written about that or confirmed it or reported on it. I think there were some sources that weren't, you know, meaningful that had sort of taken it from social media and run with it. And so I ended up using that as an example of, I mean, you should be able to trust these people, but just because all these people that you respect are sharing it on Instagram does not mean that it's true. And I think that was a big a lot of people liked they did that because I sort of showed them, you know, how long it took me to try and find the sources, where I went to look for the information and, and how I couldn't actually find it being backed up except for these two sources, which luckily at uni I'd learned how to you know, corroborate and I'd taken history and I'd, I'd learned how to research, which I wonder if young people are learning the same things in school as I did. But, yeah, it's it's very important for me to not be the first one to break something especially because, you know, it's so hard to verify things on social media. I asked Duncan Grieve why it's so important for young people to get their news from reputable sources. And what's at risk if they don't? 
I mean, I think that's really complicated. Obviously, there's there's some very basic and obvious answers. You know, as, as we record this, there is a, a cyclone bearing down on us, and the you know, if you had a worldwide setup, you'd be able to give good, reliable information that people could act on to best protect themselves and and their loved ones uh, during situations like that, this, which seems to be arising very very frequently. In terms of the bigger, knottier, longer term questions around you know, having good information. Like we, we saw this time a year ago with the protests at Parliament, what disinformation can do, which, and that is really like, the, the, this. We're, we're at a very early stage of this era. You know, we're, we're about 15 years into the cell phone and social media era. But also remember that these are evolving far more quickly than radio or television ever could or did. So and unless we actually start to have a more thoroughly thought through national response, political response, regulatory response to the the kind of challenges of this era, we are going to regularly see, as well as the kind of, you know, the natural disasters, we're going to see man-made, potentially man-made disasters of, of misinformation, disinformation come through because it, you need to be able to test the things that you see in, in spaces where there is no um, natural, is this true gate in a, in a reputable environment. And, um, you know, currently we're seeing those those environments kind of struggle and shrink. So, yeah, it's, it's non-trivial figuring it out. And there are parts of, you know, governments currently doing a regulatory review around media, but nowhere in the world has said, well, we're going to hold platforms liable for things that aren't true. And that's the big test. That's the thing that keeps the media in check here and all over the world in sort of similar types of democracies to ours. Maybe maybe we will be brave and, and do something like that and just see how the platforms adapt to it, but uh, wouldn't hold my breath. How did we get here? Did, did youth audiences switch off or um, have media companies just not moved quickly enough? I think both of those things happened essentially at the same time. Uh, there used to be, you never used to have to think about whether youth audiences would ultimately start consuming your content. You know, you, you there was your Saturday morning cartoons and your sort of soap operas with, with younger audiences. And you just knew you, they'd watch that for a while and then, inevitably start watching the news and get into whatever your kind of local and international drama and comedy offering was. And then when people got choice, you know, when, when they got infinite channels in their pockets, they started to exercise that choice and media companies were slow to react, but also they were quite limited in terms of what they could do. You could, like I said, you could spend a lot of money trying to reach a young audience. And sometimes they did, you know, experiments like Watch Me at that, that NZME uh, put out or the wireless that that, uh, that RNZ did. Yeah, they, they were good experiments, but they inevitably, you know, cost a lot of money. TVNZU was another example. They have tried. It's just, I just think it's kind of impossible to, to defeat uh, user-generated content platforms, which is why ultimately the solution probably needs to be some combination of a regulatory relationship between government and the platforms, but also the creation of content 
designed for and distributed through those platforms rather than them being an afterthought. So, Lucy Blackiston, how long can you hold out against this move by mainstream media to nudge into your space? In other words, how sustainable long-term is shit you should care about? I mean, we're very new to the media industry and I'm quite lucky that I haven't learnt how it was done before. So I'm sort of basing everything on like post-2020 media. But in terms of sustainability, I mean, we have supporters that will pay us just because they love what we're doing and they want to make sure that I can keep writing this and, you know, keep me, Rubes and Liv, who are the other two co-founders, employed. And then we also, we have space in our newsletter and in our podcasts to work with organisations or companies that align with us so we can get some advertising money. And then, yeah, we did get some funding in 2021 to make a web series with New Zealand on air. Yeah, when when the merger was sort of potentially going to happen, one of the big things, and not so much for me because we can kind of look globally because we have a global audience, but I was thinking about the fact that if a big organisation can get government money and, you know, commercial money, what that means for small independent you know, media organisations like us because, you know, we do rely on getting some commercial money and often it can be more beneficial for us to take, to make money that way than through something like New Zealand on air purely because there's, you know, quite a few hefty processes that you have to go through and particularly because you need to serve New Zealand audiences, which we definitely do, but because we're so global, it's, it's an interesting one. But yeah, I... As to how sustainable we're going to be long term, I mean, hopefully we will be. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail also needs support, and we get that through the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Blair Stagpole engineered today's episode, and our producers were Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Duncan Grieve and Lucy Blackiston. Ka kite anō.